Well, because namely believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers, they're devoted to Christ as a slave, as if they had no rights of their own, because they recognize that God Almighty is the sovereign of the universe and they are his slaves. One who gives himself up wholly to another's will. Hello, my name is Joe Durso, and I'm filling in for Dr. Bill Mazzella, who usually does the announcements and the introductory remarks in the beginning of the podcast. And I want to take this moment just to say thank you to Bill for being a, a close friend, a loyal brother, and taking the time in a very busy schedule to do that for me before each episode. Uh, this episode, I want us to think about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Why, why do we do the things we do? Why do we go to church? Why are we religious? Why do we call ourselves Christian? You know, what's the motivation behind it all? The title for this message is Constrained by the Love of God. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for every opportunity to look into your word and to see what it is there that you have placed for our good. Truth, the reality of the world as it is and not as we would see it, taking us, so to speak, out of the matrix and placing us in the truth. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that as we look into Romans 6, that we would see ourselves for what we are, the mirror that we're told your word is supposed to is. And are we going to be forgetful hearers, but are we going to be those who walk according to what we have seen, what's reflected there in reality? I ask your Heavenly Father that we would uh, have our eyes open and to understand that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray to Heavenly Father for all those who would listen in on this message, this teaching from Paul, that we would see, see your word as beneficial to our health, our spiritual life. I ask your Heavenly Father that the truth might penetrate our minds and our emotions right down to the place where we make choices and that we might, those of us who have been born again or have received what Christ has said in the Gospels, we might grow according to your grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading is from Romans chapter 6, verses 20 to 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In last week's message, we focused our attention 
on the difference between living under grace and living under the law. The key point, the pivotal point in verses 15 to 19 from the last message is uh, 17 and 18, whereby Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Point that we're going to look at further as Paul discloses it further in today's message verses taken from verses 20 to 23. But I want us to understand this phrase right here where it says, obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. The word uh, heart there is the word from which we get cardiology or cardia. It's because cardia is the word in the Greek. And this, this word is mentioned over 800 times in Scripture, but never referring to the literal physical pump that drives the blood. Rather, the, the biblical meaning behind the word is the effective center of our being, the center of our being, or the capacity of moral preference, volitional desire, choice, or desire producing, you know, or produces that, that, that produces what makes us tick. It's, it's, a, it's a number of things tied up together. It involves the intellect, it involves the emotions, and those two working together create the decisions that we make in life. That's the picture behind the, the heart. And I want to look at a few words before we get into today's lesson to kind of build towards where we're going. So when you look at the word heart in the New Testament, as in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, the word is friend, P-H-R-E-N. It has the idea of the midriff, the center, the heart, the mind, the thought, opinion, what a person really has in mind That from that word friend i.e. inner outlook, mindset, insight that regulates outward behavior. That's from this word. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So there's that heart with reference to the mind. Then there's this uh, idea of splaxnon in Greek, properly the internal organs, viscera, viscera, figuratively, gut-level compassion, visceral feelings. This is where the emotions comes in as far as the heart. The capacity to feel deep emotions, sympathy, empathy. In the Greek poets, wrote down the, the bowels were regarded as the seat of more violent passions, such as anger and love. But by the Hebrews, as the seat of the tender affections, especially kindness, benevolence, compassion. So Philippians 1.8 says, For God is my witness, 
how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So there's that picture of uh, emotion, and there's a vast distance in just how emotional people can be. Um, but that part of the heart. And then there's sincere heart, true heart, as in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That word, ethanos, true to fact. It emphasizes this organic connection authentic unity between what is true and its source or origin. So in other words, substantially true refers to what is essentially true. Connecting visible fact to its underlying reality. This is actually where a sincere heart comes about. It then emphasizes the integrity of what is true down to its inner makeup. What is real? What is inside and out true? Sometimes carries something of the Greek meaning of real. But it is the real, it is real because it is the full revelation of God's faithfulness. So the sincere heart, the true heart, is the one who's seeing reality through the eyes of God. Because God is the one who knows all things. He's the one whose motives are already completely correct. He's the one who's absolutely true. I mean, may the whole world be full of liars, but God is true. That's the the essence of a person who's living by faith. So willfully, willfully, we we choose to love from the heart. Now there's, so there's intellect, there's emotion, there's this matter of sincerity, and all of this, remember, is going back to this verse, the verses from last time, which verses say, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you entrusted. And being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. This is all all about the heart, the condition of the heart that produces this freedom from sin uh, and slaves of righteousness. Now the heart which is being changed, renovated, transformed by the power of God. So when we get to this last part, you have the intellect, you have the emotions, you have desire, you have intention, you have all of this working together, and what's it producing? It's producing will, the choices that we make. So God sees the fulfillment of the law as love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, heart, soul, strength. It's all about love and your neighbor as yourself. Choosing, if you will, to love. It's, it's, it, the heart here is not just primarily sensitive and empathetic and caring and kind and everything wrapped up with emotions only, but it's a choice. And that's why I'm making this point about Matthew 5, 43 to 44, 5, which has to do with choice, the choosing to love. Quote from Matthew 5, 43 to 45, which says, You have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the world says. But I say to you, Jesus saying this, Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And that's God. God the Father. You may prove to be sons of God. How? By choosing to love those who would be the least likely to love your enemies. It's a choice. It's not primarily here at all, really, an emotion. It can become emotional. People can be wrapped through and through with love by the power of God. And it, but it begins with a choice. Verse 20 in, our, in the verses for today bring us to this statement. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. That's kind of a little strange in the, in the, in the English. I want to look at some words to get a clear picture or a clearer picture on what he's talking about here. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. What's he talking about? Well, the word slave is doulos. Someone who belongs to another, without any ownership rights of their own. Ironically, doulos or slave is used with the highest dignity in the New Testament. Why? Well, because namely believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers, they're devoted to Christ as a slave, as if they had no rights of their own, because they recognize that God Almighty is the sovereign of the universe and they are his slaves. One who gives himself up wholly to another's will. Now, we can give ourselves up to sin's will, or we can give ourselves up to God's will and become a slave. Now, I know there's all kinds of things said about slavery by all kinds of men, all kinds of prophets. But there's looking at slavery in the context of culture, and men love to go back to Rome and understand all the variables about slavery, those things are really not important because what that does is it just culturates and culturates what the Scripture is talking about. But what the Scripture is talking, it's talking about from God's point of view. What does God refer to as slavery? When he refers to his children at the end of the book of Revelation and he calls them his slaves, is he looking at Rome? Yeah, I don't think so. He's looking at what he thinks about slavery. And he understands that what he gives us is ours. I mean, in, in a true sense, in one sense, it's a gift and it's given. Eternal life is a gift. And it's ours. And we enjoy it. And, and it becomes part of who we are. But it comes from God. He's the originator. See, seeing things through that perspective... We understand, well, it's ours, but it's because it came from him. As all things do, all good gifts come down from the Father of lights, says James. All. There's like no gift like life, your body, your soul, your mind, your emotions, everything you are is something that you received from God. So the fact that you have no rights, the fact that we belong to Almighty God is the reality 
It is the reality that we need to hold in our hearts and be committed to that reality, regardless of what Rome and every other nation does since the beginning of time in making slaves of people as if there was any right to do such a thing. You're slaves today in America. You're slave to your, your credit card. You're slave to the money you owe. You're, you're slave to, to one degree or another to a whole vast variety of things in the world that we owe. We, we lose a portion of our power, our independence, our authority, our finances. Just name it. And as that leaves, you become a slave to it. God's not referring to that kind of slavery when he talks about slavery as our being committed to him. He's talking about the righteousness that God has as the, the master of all things. The Adonai, capital L, small O-R-D, and on the King James, and NAS, and uh, numerous versions, which translate into Lord. Adonai, master, as in master-slave relationship. So there's this word slave, has a lot of meaning. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Then there's the word free. Slave is doulos, free is eleutheros. And it's free, liberated, unbound, unshackled, free to realize one's destiny in Christ, exempt, unrestrained, not bound by any obligation to do what is right. Unbound, not bound by an obligation to do what is right. We know when we're slaves to sin, we're bound to do evil. When we're free, we're, we're unshackled. We're, we're set free. What are we set free from? We're set free from the shackles to sin. In verse 21, Paul goes on and says, Therefore, so let's, let's read 20 one more time. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. So we were bound to do what comes from the heart as a sinner, which is separation from God, alienation from God, hatred for God, would rather make false idols of everything under the sun rather than serve God the Creator. That's the essence of sin. When we were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to doing what is right. We just, you know, you just, as sinners, we just don't get it right. We don't care about what's right. We care about is our own selfish desires, and that may come in a variety of ways. We, we might have good, in our mind's eye, you know, intentions to do good things. But being alienated from God, we never have the right motive. It's, it's one way or another that it comes around to self and selfishness. It's the essence of sin. So he starts out by saying, for when you were slaves of sin, of that form of life that alienates God, you were free in relation to doing what was right. So then he goes on and says in verse 21, therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. So let's take this apart in pieces. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving? Now, that word benefit is karpos, or fruit. Fruit. Why is he using the word fruit? What, what fruit 
was there, what did you derive from the things of which you are now ashamed? You know, in fruit, we think about trees, fruit trees, you know. Well, there's two types of trees in the garden. There was, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And each bears two completely different types of fruit. The fruit, uh, the fruit of the tree of life is just that. The life that comes from God. When we think about life, we think about the body. Whether or not it's functioning. And when it dies, it stops functioning and you put it in the ground. Well, that's just body life. That has nothing to do with this life that comes from God. And the life that comes from God is eternal, and it's the source of everything that's good and holy and just and true. So when a person dies, he's separated from that life, and therefore he's separated from everything that's light and truth and right and good and righteous. All of those good things, you lose. You lose that life. Even though your body's functioning, even though your soul never ceases to exist, even though you have thoughts and and you're aware in our soul, if this body were to die, I would go into the presence of the Lord, or if there was an unsafe person, would go to hell to wait judgment. Either way, there's that form of soulish life that continues, even though we're separated from the body. But in the, in the, in the garden, there were two trees. One is the tree of life. The other is the tree, true, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, what what's fruit is born from the knowledge of good and evil is that which is the fruit of sinful selfishness, self-centeredness, we just talked about it, being separated from God, alienated hatred for God. So now the fruit that he's talking about here is that fruit that benefit, which is from sin, which is just a loss of everything that's good and holy. Good fruit is everything done in true partnership with Christ. It's the tree of life, i.e. a believer is a branch. He lives in union with Christ the vine. By definition, it results from two life streams, the Lord living life through ours to yield what is eternal life. But living in sin, he says, you know, it just resulted in the thing which now makes us ashamed. Now that word ashamed is disgraced, like someone singled out because they misplaced their confidence or support. They believed in a big lie. That's the idea behind the word. And it caused them to be ashamed, personally humiliated. It brought dishonor refers to being disgraced, bringing on fitting shame that matches the error of wrongly identifying, aligning with something which obviously is evil. And therefore, Jesus gives us the option. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him, the same bears much fruit. That's the fruit of the life of God. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that nothing is nothing good, nothing holy, nothing righteous, nothing just, nothing honorable, 
And this includes motivation and intentions. Remember, the intentions of of a sinful person, which we were all born that way, those intentions, at least in the mind, you know, can seem good. But in reality, if we were able to really look into the depths of our heart, we would see that we're really haters of God and there is no good intention in it. Paul goes on in verse 22, and he says, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So to back up just a little bit, and get uh, a running start. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness or doing what was right. When you weren't bound to do what is right, you're actually free from it. You can care less about doing what is right for the purpose of honoring and pleasing God. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving, what fruit were you producing from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death, and that's that alienation and separation from God. That's that death that I just described. That's the outcome. The outcome is separation from God. But God calls us to be attached to divine who is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a holy life. He lived a life which was the life every man was meant to live. He was born to a virgin. He did not obtain, receive the, the, the death of Adam, which he, he perpetrated, he, he pushed onto all the, those born in the line of the human race, which was alienation from God. Jesus didn't receive that. He was born of the Father. Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and poured into Mary the life of God, which made Jesus both man being born of of Mary and being born of God, being divine, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty. So now you have uh, the life of God being lived through Jesus Christ. And when a person receives Jesus Christ, he's identified with Jesus Christ, that life is poured into his soul through the Holy Spirit. Not just through the mind, but into the heart, taking every part of the person, emotions included, and begins the process of transforming that person, actually giving him a new heart, and the the process of transforming that person into the very image of Christ, so that he lives like Christ, thinks like Christ, is far from perfection in this life. But the souls of righteous men in Hebrews chapter 12 are those who are made perfect upon death. And for all eternity, all sin is done away, and the, the job of sanctifying people and making them into the image of Christ is perfected. So therefore, in in verse 22, and saying, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So here's the process. Being freed from the law, having been under grace, the grace 
which is ours that we receive as a free gift that God gives. It's not dependent on our works. It's not dependent on anything we do. Even the faith we exercise is a, is a gift from Almighty God. And having received this, having received Christ, his life, his death, the truth of the gospel which came out of his mouth, which originates from Almighty God, having received that, we're born again. We're regenerated and given a new heart. Apart from this, anything you might hear about the gospel and the goodness and what God offers is meaningless. It's not offered to sinners. It's not given to sinners. Sinners do not benefit from this, as we all are from birth. A person must be born again. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, you know, we know that you're sent from God. And what's Jesus say? You know, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I mean, he just throws it right at him. How can I be born again? I mean, can I enter again into my mother's womb? You know, he's basically saying, how can I earn my way to heaven that way? Which Jesus is saying, you can't earn your way to heaven. It's a gift. It's a gift from God to be born again. Understand this reality and believe it. And to believe what God has said is the beginning of being united with God because we're taking him at his word. There's trust. There's faith. It's the essence of faith. Without trusting in God's word, you cannot be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's of grace, given freely by God. It's received through this, this element of faith. And it comes from God by believing in his word. And in verse 22, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved, to God. You see, there's a slavery that is so good. It's the slavery of love. It's the slavery of understanding and receiving the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ, which, according to 2 Corinthians 5.14, constrains us, controls us. For the love of Christ constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, meaning all those who receive Christ died because they are placed into Christ, they are identified with Christ, and when Christ died, he died for them, and they died that day in him, even though yet not, on, not yet born. Because all that matters is God knowing who he died for and placing those people whom he chose in himself. The word constrain or control is held together with constraint. To lay hold of a person and distressing him. What? Yes. Putting the constraint on a person which is a, a distress of soul in the best possible way. When the Christian looks back to the cross and he sees the penalty and the suffering that Jesus endured in his place. It's like a man looking at a, a person being whipped to death with chains and with pain and with broken bones and his body being ripped open. And he's not suffering that. Someone else is suffering in his place. What would he not do for that person who took that death in his own body? This is the love of the cross. It was, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. 
John Newton said, in amazing grace. Grace taught my heart to fear. Fear with the most endearing reverence and love and honor and praise to Almighty God for having offered up His Son to die in our place. This is the motive of the Christian when the Christian understands and comes into a full awareness of the reality of his salvation. There's no works attached to it. There's works, uh, there's works of love, not to gain heaven, but because we've been given heaven. Huge, huge difference. The difference between grace and law. And the, the difference between a righteous slavery and a godly freedom versus a, a wicked slavery and a wicked freedom. And that's where he concludes in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's just break this down. We'll hit on it a little bit next time. For the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that you get payment for. You will go to work and you get a check at the end of the week. That's your payment for what you did as you worked your way through the week and you did whatever it is that you do. At the end of the week, you get paid. Well, the wages of death the payment of death, the penalty of sin, rather, I'm sorry. The wages of sin, the penalty of sin, the, the payment for sin is death. What, what are we talking about? We're talking about alienation, separation from God. The next time you're tempted to sin, if you're a Christian, just, just stop for a second. Let that second sink in. Let that second weigh on you that that sin Jesus paid for. Let that be the motivation to not go ahead with it because Jesus paid the price for that sin. Don't knowingly do that sin and don't conjure up some, muster up some power in yourself. Understand that you're, you're bound, your, your, your victory is in your identification with Christ. He knows who you are. He knows where you're at. He knows the temptation that you're facing. He faced it himself, and he won the victory. Now put your faith and trust in what he can do because you're not living in that place anymore. This has brought shame on you. What, what benefit did it have? Now you're ashamed of what you did, so let's not go on living that way. That's the whole purpose in Romans 6 and, and 7 and into 8, all this whole thing in which he, Paul shades it with many different layers of many different colors in how it affects us, how we think about it. Here, it's about freedom and slavery. The, 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 the slavery is to sin. The result is to death. When it's a slavery to sin, the wages are death. For the wages of sin is death. That's that end of it. But, big, huge <clears throat> but here, which is the gracious gift of God, 
as eternal life. Now, it's a gift. It's nothing that we do. Not even our faith. Faith is it's just a channel through which God gives to us the means through which God gives to us his free gift of eternal life. Just receive it. Believe in it. And pray to God that he would give you the gift of faith to believe. The gracious, the gracious gift of God is eternal life. How? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ, Messiah, sent one, Jesus, Savior, our Lord. For as many as received him, to them gave the power to become the children of God. If we should confess with our mouth Jesus Christ as Lord, he's master. He's the one who says and we do. He's the one who owns us. We don't own him. We don't tell him what to do. How could God let such a thing happen? Are the words coming from the heart of an evil person who doesn't understand that God has a plan, a blueprint behind everything that's taking place. And for those who love him, all things work together for the good. Because of the trust that lies in our hearts, the faith that lies in our hearts, the love for what he had done for us 2,000 years ago. Do you think it matters what happens in our lives today? If we're persecuted, if we're put in prison, if we're ridiculed, if we're rejected, does any of that matter compared to the, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and the eternity of blessing that he has for us, no matter how we might end in this life? doesn't matter. What does 70, 80, 100 years compare to eternity? You understand eternity. If we were to take a drop of water out of all the oceans in all the, wor in all the world, all the water in the world, one drop at a time, every thousand years, by the time the world was completely dry, that would be the snap of your fingers in time compared to eternity. A thousand years for every drop. Just that fast. Eternity is endless. No matter how you put it, no matter how you think about it, when you compare it to eternity... It's, it's immediate because eternity is eternal. It never ends. It goes on forever and ever and ever. Everlasting. Ever. Everlasting. What kind of life are you living right now? What kind of a person are you that's listening to this? Are you sitting in your seat? Are you standing? Are you, you got some you know, electronic device in your ear and you're listening to this and you're thinking about the wages of sin and the gift of God and eternal life and Jesus Christ as Lord. And, you know, is it worth all this? You know, do I just want to hang on and just continue to go the way I am? I mean, everything is cool. Everything is feels safe right now. Don't rock the boat. Just keep going. Just understand this. But after you hear these words that come from the Apostle Paul, through the Apostle Paul, from Almighty God, Understand that you're faced with a choice. You can't get away from it. You've heard this. Maybe you've heard the gospel before. Who knows how many times before? Maybe you never heard it before, but you heard it now. Well, just picture yourself as sitting on a railroad track, and the train is coming. If you don't choose to get up and get off the railroad track, don't complain when you're hit with the train, because you made the choice to stay. You either get up and you get off, and you go to safety, 
in the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ who's offering the gift of himself or you choose to stay. You, you're going to make a choice. There's no free ride. There's no like, don't think about it and it's going to go away. It doesn't go away. It's never going to go away. You're going to spend an eternity one way or another. You're either going to be resurrected from the dead and given a new body that can last eternity in heaven amidst the saints in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth and all that God has planned in that hour and those days in that eternity. Or you'll be given a resurrected body that will withstand the fires of hell because you rejected the gift that God offered in the precious death and sufferings of Jesus Christ. The choice today is yours. I would plead with you. I would plead with you to make a choice for Jesus Christ. Give your life to him. Give your heart to him. Give your soul. Give your all. It's the best deal he'll ever make in life and in eternity. And the alternative isn't death. It isn't bliss. It isn't not being. That's not truth. It's not reality. God is the source of truth and he wrote a book. And in that book there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. I'm bearer of the tidings, good tidings. And evil tidings. I can't tell one without the other. There is no glory in Christ without hell. Why hell? Because God is righteous and holy and because he has the right to do what he does. And he's good, actually. He's a good judge. He judges evil for what it is, even though we don't want to see ourselves for what we are. He does. And he's going to call it for what it is. Maybe you can't see that. Maybe you look in the mirror and you see something good. Maybe you see something good when you tell that white lie. Maybe you see something good when you cheat on your wife or your husband. Or maybe you lust after this woman or that. Or maybe you get jealous because this person has this wonderful lifestyle and you got nothing and you're living in the gutter. Whatever it is. If it's murder, or lying, or jealousy, or covetousness, or idolatry, which it all comes to that because you're just blaming God for the life that you live. And all of the internal fruit that you're bearing unto ungodliness and unrighteous thinking and unholy living and all of that. When you look in the mirror, you don't see any of that. All you see is circumstances. That's not believing from the heart to that form of doctrine to which you were. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Hallelujah. The alternative uh, is verse 23 of this message. For the wages of sin is death. That's one way to go. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message which is found in your word and all through your word. It's unchanging. No prophet, no teacher, no shepherd has any right to change the message at all. It's hard and it's great. It's glorious. It's, it'll beat us down or it'll lift us up to heights we never thought possible. 
It's your word. And it's true. I give you the praise and the glory for sending Jesus into a world that was it wouldn't didn't have to do it at all. Never had to allow anything evil into the universe. But the Father wanted to exalt people to a place that they couldn't get there any other way. They couldn't get there to be ushered into the divine family. A member of the family with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit loved like the Father loves the Son. Even though we're created beings, we are sinful beings, haters of God, unjust, unholy, and invited into the divine family to share eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's, it boggles the mind for the person who's willing to think about it. I know, Lord, that there are many who right now are in sin. They're living in sin. They're okay with sin. They're justifying and rationalizing their behavior and their thought life and their motives of their heart and their alienation from God and their idolatries rather than submit to your will, bow the knee, and say, yes, Lord, I, I love you. I want to love you. I want to be saved by you, and I want to share eternity with the divine family. Lord, grant those who are ordained to eternal life to come to Jesus Christ in hearing this message. Usher them into your kingdom Translate them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your dear Son. Allow them, O Lord, to be saved and to be born again, to be given a new heart under a new covenant, a heart upon which you place your laws and you write them in their mind. Bring the lost into the kingdom. We ask these things for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.